Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So the uh, question here about metta. Uh, we practice metta at the end of the day. Could you say something about when and in what circumstances we can and, sh- and should cultivate karuna, mudita, and upeka, and how they fit in with vipassana practice overall? Um, one of the problems that may occur with vipassana is uh, an objectivity which turns into an indifference. That's your problem there. Taking this stand within ourselves of the objective observer, just watching things arise and pass away, can become, shall we say, um, too passive. And uh, you can you can move towards indifference, you know, with the, with the usual phrase, oh, it's just karma, you know. So, you know, if somebody, somebody falls down screaming with pain before you, you can stand completely, kind of say, oh, that's all right, it's just a bit of karma. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the heart's not drawn because it's found this little place where it's untouched, you know. And it's often a case of being afraid to get engaged, frankly. There can be fear there of, actually getting engaged in suffering. And we do that when we note something and, and we're actually pushing it away. See, that's, that's a case where we're callousing ourselves, where we're, we're drawing um, a thick skin in between that which knows, that which feels, and what there is to be felt, because it doesn't want to go there, basically. But it kids itself and says, well, I, I can see it as a process, I can see the anicca, I can see it's not me, not mine. But it's not me, not mine in that sense. It's not, it's, not, it's not quite the right me, not, not me, not mine. It's still ours in a conventional sense. It's our baggage, for heaven's sake, you know. Mm-hmm. So you have to be slightly careful about that. So that's, that's the right understanding when we do it properly. But you can see that in the Eightfold Path, you start off with this right understanding, which has three levels, remember. The level of uh, receiving information right, from a teacher, from the books and etc. Making it our own intellectual knowledge by, by contemplating it, by thinking about it so that intellectually uh, we have a confidence in it see, because it's now become our, our thought and making it real through the pasana, a direct experience. So now that's the first step, right samaditi, right understanding. The next one is uh, samasankapa, right attitude. Okay? So it has, to, it has to systemically drop from this understanding into the heart as an attitude, or else it remains too remote. This is it, right? And that's why we do metta. That's the purpose of metta, because then it draws it. So what is wisdom in action? It's compassion, isn't it? It's love, compassion, and joy. That's wisdom in action. That's what it manif- manifests as some form of love, compassion. C- 
sympathetic joy and all the other virtues uh, as an attitude that is in the heart you see and then it, then it goes right speech so that's the next thing it comes out through what we say right action and then right livelihood so you see it flows out into society and because it flows out into society that way doesn't mean it can't flow back this way so depending on your job and what qualities your job demands it will come back up the other way into attitude and into wisdom so if you have a job which say uh, demands a certain service a quality of service and virtually every job does you know apart from trafficking in human beings and arms and, <laughs> and all, the, all the, the nasty bits but most jobs can be seen as a service you know therefore it's a, it's a compassionate thing it's a loving thing uh, and that feeds into your attitude and that gives you that interconnectedness the more you see yourself as interconnected the less there is of this me you know on my own doing my own thing in my own time in my own way you know hell with you lot <laughs> so it works either way see so that's why you can start with love and it'll feed back into wisdom and feed out into um, into action so there's your three paths you see path of insight path of wisdom path of love uh, and the path of action three karmas see? the Hindus delineate that I think more clearly than do uh, the Buddhist lineage. They have these three karmas, you see. But it's there within the Buddha's teaching. There's no, no problem with that. <clears throat> but the Buddha's very much um, inclined to approach the situation from right understanding. That's his position, you see. Whereas you can see a religion like uh, Christianity approaches it more from love. Approaches it from that point of view. So, in terms of the question, um, how does it fit in with Vipassana practice? That's how it fits in. So, in a sense, every time you do a, a session of uh, Vipassana, there ought to be a little one minute, it doesn't take long, one minute, two minutes of just bringing it into an attitude. So, the exercise we did there, the first bit, takes about, what, 15 minutes when you do it long ways. But it's only a couple of minutes when you just flash through all the different categories you don't even have to do that you just give it to yourself and all beings you know and remember when you if you want to use it to calm yourself if you're having so we say difficulty sleeping uh, that's one of the gifts of metta it helps to relax the mind gives the, the heart a good feeling and you fall asleep and but to do that you must choose somebody whom you have no problems with <laughs> so if you you choose somebody you have problems with the mind, and definitely somebody not whom you loved who's who's passed away or or fallen ill or something. Then it just brings grief and stuff. So it's basically to yourself and somebody or to all beings. Simple phrase, and you don't make these complicated phrases because that wakes you up. It's just very simple. I had a very interesting experience with that. You know, there's an Israeli man turned up at Kandaboda. And he said he hadn't slept in his life. He hadn't slept in his life ever. And I said, um, I said, yeah, no, not since I was a child. Uh, mainly because of trauma, you know, the bombs and all that. 
I said, you must sleep. I said, you know. He said, no, what happens is I lose consciousness for just a moment and then I'm awake again. Uh, and I questioned him about it and he, yes, he said he, n- he never slept. He, he, he went into this sort of momentary blackout and came out again. He was doing Vipassana. So I said to him, well, I said, the, the antidote according to the Buddha is just loving kindness. So I gave him the instructions that I've just given you, which are the classic instructions, you see. And he came back the next day and he said he'd slept for two hours. Very joyful, very happy. <laughs> and by the end of the week, he was oversleeping. <laughs> sent me a present from Israel. <laughs> so uh, that was powerful, wasn't it? Over this trauma. Um, so, back to the question. Um, you know, like when and in what circumstances? Well, in the discourse on, you know, uh, loving kindness, the Buddha says to do it all the time. It's, it's just a, a way of being in the world. Uh, coming into a situation with that open-heartedness, with that kindness. And remember, you can flavor your own meditation with that. When you're looking inward, you can flavor the way that you're looking with a certain kindness. Hmm? And that's very helpful if, you, if you're working with something which isn't particularly pleasant. Hmm? So, in terms of when and where, all the time, that's what the Buddha says. Those, he says, those who, who live like that, um, you know, uh, will achieve liberation. So, if you think about it, um, you know, we're made up of these composites. We're made up of the mind in terms of thinking and, and that, and the heart with its emotional life, and the body with its actions. So somehow you, it's got to all work together. And um, it's just looking upon our lives as, um, as that way of being interconnected which brings up the idea of service. Yeah? That you're never doing anything just for yourself. You know, there's always some, even if you're only doing it for yourself, it's so that you can be healthy and wise to help other people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like always trying to make that connection. I mean, the Buddha does say, you do things for yourself, for others, both yourself and others. Right? But um, I think you can sort of twist things to make, to, make it, to make it so that everything you do is in some sort of relationship with the world. Okay? So that's, that's when you do it. I mean, consciously, when do you do it consciously as a real effort? Um, well, the morning, obviously... And um, and before before you in the evening sometime with the meditation that's the two times you know we're supposed to sort of practice. So the morning is setting setting ourselves in the right frame of mind for the day. And the evening is really a, a letting whatever we've accumulated during the day just give it time to you know evaporate. And then you end with loving kindness. You know that, that sets you up for the evening really the evening TV. It's all right as long as it's football. But of course, there are specific times when uh, the various things are called upon, like karuna, um, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, 
And um, these things, of course, in, in the literature have their obvious enemy and their very subtle enemy. So the obvious enemy of love is hatred. But its more subtle energy is, is, enemy is attachment. Now, so long as we've got a self, there will be attachment. There's no way we, we can get rid of attachment just because we think it's not shouldn't be there. It'll be there. It's just knowing its manifestation. So you can always normally tell when you're acting from an attached point of view because you're very pleased that somebody's doing what you told them to do. You're very irritated because they're not doing what you told them to do. <laughs> and you're very annoyed because, or you're very afraid because they're not doing what you see what I mean. There's always, there's always some negativity comes up, you know, which manifests the attachment. Which doesn't mean to say that what you're telling them to do isn't, isn't the right thing for them to do or what you're advising them to do, you know. See, when I uh, started this teaching, I used to get quite irked, miffed, <laughs> by the fact I'd give these instructions and people wouldn't do them. I thought, what's the bloody point? <laughs> I'm the teacher. If I said, go slow, they should go slow, see? And then I had a long talk with myself. And I thought, what are you getting miffed for, see? So now, I, if people don't uh, do what I ask them to do, that's fine, but I'm very happy when they do. <laughs> That's, you can move yourself over, you see. You know. So it's just a case of recognizing that attachment, some form of attachment will be there with relationships and with things. And it's just knowing that that causes us some form of discomfort and sometimes heavy, heavy pain, really. But it's just knowing it as the product of self, you see. And then the way we deal with it is exactly what Vipassana is teaching us. You know, we feel it, we let it go, we don't feed into it. And then as it passes away, we feed into the opposite. Okay. Uh, there's an, a case in the scriptures where there's three Arahats living together, the Anarudas, as they're called. Um, of course, they are fully liberated. And the Buddha asked them, how is it they live so peacefully together, you see? And Anuruddha says, well, I say to myself, what if I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? See? Now that's the selfless way. But it only works if everybody else is doing the same. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you say that and they're not saying it, you just get abused. See? So, so you have to be very careful about that one. But at least you can have that attitude of at least first opening up to what the other wants. When anybody, for instance, came to the Buddha and said, you know, what, what, what do you teach about karma? Or what do you teach about this and that? He would always reply, well, what's, what's your understanding? See? He never sort of launched into his, you know, well, this is it and this is the way it should be, you know. So what's your understanding? And then when, he'd give, when they'd given them his understanding, he would argue with them to show that their understanding had a flaw in it, see? And then when they saw the flaw, they immediately dropped probably their conceited position of I'm right and the Buddha and, and this guy's wrong. And because they were that open, then he'd, he'd, he'd tell them what his teaching was. Well, not everybody accepted it, even so, you know. Now that's interesting because when they asked the Buddha, how do you feel when somebody doesn't receive your teaching? He says, well, it's all right. It's not, because it's all calm, it's all, you know. 
But how do you feel when they do? They feel joyful. He knows his limits. You can't, you can't enlighten somebody, can you? <laughs> when we say that, let me enlighten you. <laughs> let me disabuse you of your... When it comes to karuna, the opposite, the obvious opposite, is cruelty, of course. You know, instead, of, instead of wishing somebody's free of harm, you give them some. Give them some pain. The subtle one is um, pity, grief. Yeah. Feeling sorry for somebody. And uh, if you think about that, it sounds, it sounds right to feel sorry, but you're not, you see. There's an I in there feeling sorry for somebody. There's a difference between that and empathy, isn't there? Because with empathy, you connect with their feeling because you've had similar feelings and that draws you to want to help. But to say, oh, you poor thing. Yeah, you want to hit them, don't you? <laughs> no, I'm so sorry for you. Thank you very much. <laughs> So it's very, you have to, you know, it's, it's a subtle one because people think they're being kind by saying, you know, I feel so sorry for you. Uh, mudita is uh, joy. Um, the um, the obvious enemy of the the obvious enemy of that is is envy, obviously, envy and jealousy. So by developing mudita, we undermine those two qualities, you know. Uh, but the subtle one is excitement, interestingly enough. Just getting excited, getting overexcited, sort of moving into an indulgence with it. Yeah. And, that, and what keeps it from doing that is this upeka. What stops all these things from sort of going off is upeka, just that basis of a of, it, of an equanimous mind, the equanimity. And the equanimity is, remember, always begins with that position of openness. See? So you're not coming from a position. So when you're, when the heart, res, re, uh, when the heart uh, resonates with somebody else's happiness, it's at the level of their resonance. You're not overdoing it, you know. Which is, which we often do because often underneath it we're pushing away the jealousy and the envy oh I'm so happy for you Yo, absolutely wonderful yeah, 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 yeah. You know? <laughs> I remember once there was this monk you know, and it, went, oh, it was just so painful and we were opening a centre and he said these lovely things you see about the, about the, the centre and all these people who've been involved and etc you know? and then during lunch you know, it was such a telltale he, said, he turned down and he said you know I meant every word I said that's a giveaway isn't it you have to tell people that you met in every word you said anyway I prayed for him (laughs) it's funny isn't it now you see this is is something that um, doesn't really come up in western in uh, Buddhist psychology Uh, Buddhist psychology the way the way the Buddha the way it comes from the Buddha I mean, it's there in the sense of the anusaya, the uh, potential 
uh, defilements that sit underneath. But um, I haven't really come across uh, the Western idea of um, unconscious motivation, which is actually affecting what you do and you don't really know it. And it's, people know it because it's in the inflection of your voice, it's in the way that you hold yourself. And it, what you are trying to make sincere and what you might actually believe as sincere, other people actually perceive as completely insincere. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, uh, and of course Vipassana, one of the things about Vipassana is that um, you might be sitting here and if, if you do really note, you'll catch these underlying thoughts because they'll come up, you see. All the ones that we don't like to describe ourselves by, that don't fit in with our self-esteem. Yeah? I mean, the obvious one is envy and jealousy. Envy is just about allowable. But jealousy is um, the way I would distinguish the two. I mean, it's, maybe it's just my distinct, distinction, but envy is, is basically just wanting what the other person has. And jealousy is, is the same, except you hate them for it. <laughs> you hate them for having what they have, you know. And, uh, you know, that, that's basically saying to ourselves, I'm inferior. So we don't like to acknowledge that we're really envious or really jealous, you know. And so these things we, you know, and we, we hide from ourselves those things that don't fit into our idea of who we are, our self-esteem. And Vipassana often, you know, gives us these little ins to ourselves, which, you know, which can be humiliating but at least now we know why uh, nobody likes us you know <laughs> before we didn't understand you know, why people get upset with us you know people who say they're never angry and they're fuming that that sort of silliness you know so um opening up uh the Vipassana opens us up to ourselves and then we have to translate that. So in terms of when and in what circumstance, I mean, there are obvious places where these, they're called illimitables, manifest. But generally speaking, what we're trying to develop is a concurrent attitude that runs with the wisdom we have. That's all. It runs concurrent. So in the morning when you know, when I say do these um, resolutions for the day, try and add. See, I've got four of them now. I keep building up. It's getting ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But you can, like, you, you make a resolution on the wisdom side, a resolution on the attitude, a resolution about your work, a resolution. See what I mean? And just by doing that sincerely, um, eventually it, it turns. It, it actually does. It does. It does work. Think, things can creep up on you. You see, um, I give you an example. I was, you know, when when you go to the east as a monk, um, especially as a Sudduhamdurua, as they call you in Sri Lanka, a white monk, <laughs> you get this generally special treatment because people are people have a uh, their faith is raised that somebody of another culture should become a Buddhist. You know, it's not so strange now but in the old days it would have been amazing you know and uh, you get there and people give you food and they ask you what do you need and you get the medicine you want the clothes you want the shelter and everything you know so i'd i'd been i'd gone back to sri lanka on one occasion 
and I was staying at this monastery in Colombo and they were serving this food and over a period of two or three days they were getting really irritated. I thought, why don't they know I'm a Westerner? Why don't they offer me an egg? See, they don't like <laughs> Sri Lankans don't offer eggs too much because it's part of meat. It's something, you know, and the order is meant to be vegetarian. Uh, just as an aside, when I first joined this order in, in Kandaboda, one of the monks said very, uh, you know, very proudly to me that, you know, we're vegetarians, you see. And on the same meal, all this fish was, <laughs> was served, you know, and a Westerner made a wry comment that fish were automated self-propelling vegetables. <laughs> sort of allowable. And uh, to my surprise, I was feeling really disgusted with this food, which not so long ago was, I was really delighting in. I thought, oh, this is really strange, you see. And then I just caught this, this complete lack of ingratitude for the food that was being given me. And I, and I was moaning that they weren't giving me, you know, spaghetti and, and toast. So... <laughs> And as I saw that, and I came back, and I thought, no, you know, I thought, for heaven's sake. So I began to develop gratitude, and of course, the food started to taste beautiful again. And it just shows how your attitude, you know, really cancers your, your, rela your relationship to things, you know. So in, uh, in um, uh, just to bring it all together, the reason why the Buddha practices metta is because that's your, your basic attitude to all living beings. And once that's set properly, the other two illimitables, mudita, uh, this joy and compassion, arise naturally. You don't have to worry about it. Either. I know that in Buddhist history, um, the Mahayana took compassion as their big thing which is understandable because the Buddha is talking about suffering and the end of suffering, you know. Uh, but that was generally a reaction against what was a tradition that had become too vipassana bound, too head bound really. And somehow was losing contact with the people, it seems. Uh, you get this movement according to the... And then it goes right the other way. There's some school that thinks that karuna is more important than wisdom. So it's sort of... It's completed a circle, you see. Any questions come up ab about that? I'm going to just say very briefly about the resolves in the morning. Are they specific to things like the resolve on a, on a wisdom and an attitude? Well, I'm only suggesting that. Oh, I see, yes. It can be any resolution. Yes. Whatever, whatever the day is. Like, for instance, if you know you've got a hard day at work coming up, so you, you resolve just to, to endure patiently. Yes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, yes. if you know it's going to be a day off, you make a resolution to use it to the best advantage rather than just fritter the time away. Hmm, anything, yes. anything really. Uh, but there may be uh, certain resolutions which are very continuous because you're working with something. I mean, to make a resolution to uh, to develop moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness is a sort of basic attitude, you know. And sometimes I find it comes up during the day. 
quite spontaneously. Uh, could you explain what is meant when uh, one reads about applied or sustained thoughts and where they appear in the jhanas? Um, also, how do they differ in quality? I assume that they are skillful application of thought. Can you explain in what way and what to look out for in case of slipping into unskillful application? Um, these are technical terms. Uh, Wittaka, Wichara. And um, in a sense, they um, uh, they're slightly mistranslated by thought. It's more um, that the thinking mind is directed to an object. It's not thinking about something. So talking about it in terms of vipassana, when you note something, like for instance you're noting the breath, so rising, falling, and then if you have a touching point. But let's just say, make it easy, rising, falling. So rising, falling. You can see that the intellect is involved. Hmm? But um, in a sense, it's not, it's not actually uh, drawn into the object, as it were. And that's why, because the effort, the, the focus isn't there, it flits away. But you keep bringing it back. You keep bringing it back, you see? And that's the process of vitaka. The, uh, the image that they give in the um, commentaries is a, a bee flying around a flower. A bee flying around a flower. As you keep doing that, as you're rising, falling, there's a feeling of, of sort of being drawn into it and getting stuck on the object, as it were. feels like you can't even move off it sometimes, that sort of feeling. That's when the bees landed on the flower, you see. That's the vichara. And it's a sign to the meditator that their focus, their concentration, is now matured, right? And as you know, you've got to do this every sitting. It's not as though it's matured and that's the end of that, you know like cheese it's like <laughs> it's like yeah you gotta keep working at it so then it becomes this wichara you see wichika wichara in uh, if you were doing meta practice you would just do your um, good wishes may all beings be happy you see but the mind would be moving all over the place but as you keep doing it it's as though the phrase now comes naturally and you're stuck with it and it's there in the background, and it's easy to stay with that phrase. So at that point, it's become vichara, vitika vichara. And they are, wh when that's really nicely developed, the mind's very still, you're, 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 you're probably in what's known as the first jhana. That's the sign of the first jhana. And there are two types of jhanas, which I have written about on the website. There's one called Lakana Jhana and there's one called Alambana Jhana. This is, I'm giving you another commentary or stuff. I'm sounding very learned, but this is about the limit of it. <laughs> 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 the Lakana Jhana are those concentration states which are developed on the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfaction, and not self. And therefore, they belong to the Vipassana tradition. The Alambana Jhana are those that are developed on an object, such as loving-kindness or the breath, which are to do with the Jhana. Hmm? So, 
what that's saying is that the level of concentration is the same but with the jhana there's no investigation there's just the development of that mental state and the enjoyment of it and the Buddha said that's good because it's developing the heart with the vipassana there's always the intelligence there's always the investigation that's the difference and that's why anybody practicing jhana can even unwittingly slip into vipassana and those in vipassana can unwittingly slip into jhana they they just move between the other but certain traditions will uh, go down one of those paths there'll be a combination of jhana vipassana or uh, just vipassana the mahasi was the vipassana the dry way as it's called vipassana only so that's the meaning of this Vichakavichara. Yeah. Applied and sustained. It's just a funny translation, but it's difficult to translate these things sometimes. Yeah? Does that? Any questions? Any? Uh, Bhante, could you say more about the meaning of Satipanya? Also, I've heard the term Satisampajanya, which sounds similar, but I don't know the origin and significance of it. Now, satipanya is not scriptural. You only will not find anywhere in the scriptures the two words satipanya stuck together like that. And I pinched it from the great teacher, Buddha Dasa, who taught, because <laughs> he used to talk about it. At least that's what I remember. And uh, what they are are the two qualities of the, of the Buddha mind, of the, of the enlightened person. Now, although we talk about them being two things, actually they're one and the same thing. One is its passive quality and the other one is active. So, first of all, to understand something, you've got to look. And when you look, then you see, or you don't see. See? So the first is receiving, you see. That's why I try and emphasize this uh, quiet abiding of just being open Uh, of the equanimity of just receiving you see that's your sati and in receiving uh, in receiving one sees one one understands yeah there's a difference between opening up and and, and letting things come to you uh, as opposed to looking for something because when you're looking for something you're coming from a position. Yeah? You're coming from a, a past experience, a conceptual idea, you see? Now that's going to corrupt the panya, you see? That's going, and uh, we can say in general, spiritually speaking, when you're looking for something, because you're coming from some idea, some notion, you see, if you get what it is that you've been looking for, uh, well, if you don't get it, you're disappointed, right? and you're frustrated. And if you do, you, you, you're deluded. <laughs> you, know, uh, you go around thinking you are enlightened because you, it fits in with your concept of what Nibbana is, then that's it, you've had it. You're in, you're in the state of perdition. There's, <laughs> there's little hope, at least in this lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> they say... They say uh, how do they put it now? The the illness caused by the intellect, by con- by conceited intellect, 
is like the illness caused by a medicine. It's like, you know, if you've got a medicine to cure an illness, that's good. But if the medicine itself gives you an, an illness, then you're really stuck. So the idea of sati is this complete openness. And that's what the Buddha called his discourse on this whole Vipassana thing. Sati Patana, the establishment of sati. Yeah? And if you go through the opening stanzas of that, you can get good translations now, Bhikkhu Bodhi, places like that, you'll see um, he goes through the stages of just, first of all, just getting in touch with the breath. You know, it's a long breath, a short breath, he's just getting in touch with the breath. And then uh, as you get in touch with the breath, you calm the body, you calm the mind. See, that's the sati. You're just, you're just pulling back from it, just letting it, letting it calm itself, you see through the breath and then you begin to note the impermanence of it or the process of it the beginning and the end yeah? and the middle bits and then he says when just when there's just enough sati just enough panya insight will arise and you can't make that happen you just you slowly develop it through this attitude of placing your attention on the object with that openness and with the presumption, with the faith that there is this intelligence within that looking, you see. Now, the three things that always come together, the three words that always come together is atapi, sati, uh, sampajano satima. So the atapi is the effort and it's continuous, unremitting effort it's actually a word which is somehow related to mortification exercises. <laughs> but it's, that, it's meant to be that sort of continuous, um, unrelenting, gentle effort to remain mindful. The sampajanya is with this intelligence, with this intuitive intelligence, not, not the intellect, not thinking, yeah? And being aware, it's an adjective. So that sampajanasatima the, the nouns that come from that are sati panya. That's the relationship. And just as a, a little aside, what happened was in uh, 98 when I returned from Sri Lanka and, and during that year decided that I was going to stay in Britain, I wasn't going to go back. And I realized that to stay here meant that I'd have to teach because the support, there wasn't the... Uh, internal structure for easy support for a monk you know you have to have to teach really um, I asked a friend uh, well somebody said to me well you need to set something up so they set a website up for me they said you need a logo so I asked this fellow who was a printer and who, who um, uh, worked a little bit in those early in 98 it's funny how things have moved so fast to make up a logo and I gave him some ideas, you see. I said, well, I said, I want it to be uh, a Dhamma Chakra, uh, a wheel, you know. And I wanted to have 12 spokes for the 12 uh, links of the dependent origination, uh, cut into four for the Four Noble Truths, eight for the eight paths. And it had all these, <laughs> 16 of them, 10 of those, had everything <laughs> on this wheel, you see. Well, the poor man struggled at it. And when it came out, it was horrible. <laughs> I, you know, and I didn't know what to say. You know, I, I, we must have spent hours on this thing. I felt really terrible. I thanked him, of course. 
<laughs> and quietly put it to the side, you know. Um, he wasn't a sort of person to hold grudges. And what it did was, it made me stop and think, well, what, you know, what am I teaching? That's what it made me do, which is rather good, actually. I said, no, what is it I'm teaching, you know? And these words came quite spontaneously at the time. I'm teaching Satipanya. And that's how I ended up with this logo I've got. Satipanya. And the five whiskers, uh, the, the actual circle, <laughs> the circle without the whiskers, if you can imagine it's just one circle with all those petals, you often get that symbol, especially in Burma. And they're the 24 patches that we chant, 24 relations, you see. And I stuck these whiskers in uh, to, uh, for the five spiritual faculties going inward and coming out they were supposed to be the four illimitables with uh, wisdom pushing them, pushing them out you see and the inner circle which is free of colour where the, the thing stopped that was meant to be a symbol for uh, Nibbana in this life for the Buddha as he, as he was living and the black spot <laughs> is Parinibbana, total Nibbana. That was the idea of it. All this you will find written up on my website. <laughs> In great detail. So, um, that's the uh, Satipanya, anyway, that's, that's what it means. And I, as I say, I, I filched it off. A very good teacher, Buddhadasa. Whom I... Um, really was following yesterday when I was talking about this business of rebirth. See, if you, if you look at the text carefully enough, the Buddha's talking about rebirth of self. It's all about the rebirth of self and the suffering of rebirth of self. Okay. And there's um, a phrase which is not quoted so often, actually, but it should be. And it's um, in the it's a consciousness. In the Pali, it's vinyana anidasana narantan sabato pabang. It's about, that's one of the five um, quotes that I know. I don't want you to think, oh, this fellow knows Pali. I've learned this one, I've learned this one especially off by heart so I can keep quoting it. And it's a consciousness. See, he uses the word consciousness. It's the same word that he uses for the five candors. Yeah, for the five aggregates. So one is vijnana, you see. But there it has a different meaning. There it's an act of cognition. Right? But then he says there is this consciousness which is not touched by any of the senses. So you can't see it, you can't smell it or anything else, you can't think about it, you can't emote. There's nothing there at all. And he says it's boundaryless because there's no phenomena. It's only phenomena that makes a boundary, isn't it? It's only the walls of this room that give the, the room a boundary. If there's no phenomena, it's boundaryless and in all directions full of light. See? And as far as I know, that only comes up once in the scriptures and it comes up as an answer to a question. And the question is, where is it that the four great elements come to an end? Now the four great elements, remember, are fire, earth, water and air, right? So what, what the question is really saying, where does the world come to an end? And he says, that's the wrong question. He says, where does the world 
not find a footing. Ah, and then he, he makes this statement. See? Now, the whole of Mahayana is basically based on that statement. Because in early Buddhism, the Buddha is much more... The Buddha likes to put the accents on the experience of Nibbana. In later Buddhism, the question was asked, well, what is it that experiences Nibbana? And that's where the, the thing shifts towards consciousness and the study of consciousness as such. Some very good histories on that, by the way. I want to read about it. You know, the, the evolution of, of Buddhist thinking and, and practice. And that's where you get the evolution of the practice of Zen and Zogchen, you see. Just the awareness. So, uh, when you trace that back to the original scriptures, whether it's the Theravada scriptures or the Savastavadin scriptures, you always um, come across this accent on sati. You know, if you were to put the whole of the Buddha's teaching in a practical teaching anyway, in one word, it would have to be sati. I can't think of another word that would fit so closely to what he's trying to teach. What is sati? How do you develop it? Where does it lead to when you develop sati? Okay. So you can see why I cling to the words sati panya. <laughs> you see why I'm very attached. <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of our questions in terms of uh, what's written there, I think. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.